Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And today we're going to give our hot take review on the game we just finished playing, Tyrants of the Underdark. But before we do, we do have some poll results to discuss as we do every week. We are asking a poll question on Twitter as well as on our Facebook group, and you can go there and interact with it and respond and maybe even leave a comment and we'll we'll mention it on the show here. So the poll question I asked this week, what's your favorite way to spend your time with board games that doesn't involve playing them? Because we know this hobby has a lot of overhead with it. So hopefully you're enjoying some of that as well. Here are the options I gave. And a lot of people, of course, told me that I didn't give the right answers. But let's stick with these for now. The first one was shopping for them. On Twitter, it was 33.7%. And on Facebook, it was on 26%. Punching or learning them was 51% on Twitter and 65% on Facebook. Setup and teardown was 4.5% on Twitter and nobody on Facebook likes doing setup and teardown. And then crafting and painting was 10.9% on Twitter and 9% on Facebook. How did you guys answer this question? I don't remember what I put on this poll. Probably a crafting and what was it? Crafting and something? Do you do any crafting and painting of your stuff? (laughs) (laughs) Why would you answer that? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No, but um, your your choices were ridiculous. None of those. Get rid of all those. What I like doing board games in my spare time when I'm not playing them is kind of seeing the evolution. Like, um, okay, maybe this board game has elements of this and this and this board game. Oh, and this next board game is kind of an iteration on these board games. So I like seeing board games that uh, kind of compare and contrast and take elements from certain other board games and seeing the next kind of evolution and steps and the progression of board games. That's what I like to do. So take a look at a board game, see what came before it and maybe what came after it, if there is something after it, which is none of your choices. It's like researching them. That's it, man. Researching them, comparing them. Oh, that's my answer. Just thinking about thinking about board games. <laughs> I must be the oddball here because I am probably the one person who actually likes setting up and tearing down games. I don't really like learning them. I mean, I hate learning new games, which is kind of ironic for a guy who reviews games and plays a new one every week. I don't paint them. I don't do any of that stuff. I don't particularly love punching them. But I actually do really enjoy the kind of meditative process of getting out a game and setting it up. Now, I will say one caveat. This is not like, hey, everybody's on their way over and better hurry up and get the game out there. Not that kind of thing. But like, for example, this last Saturday, I just had a little bit of free time and I've been kind of wanting to get out my Asia expansion for the new wingspan nesting box that I just got. And so I'm like, oh, I'm just going to set this up on the table and, you know, hopefully somebody will wander by and say that looks like it'll be fun to play. And it was very nice. I put on some Christmas music and I was just setting up the game and doing it kind of at a slow, leisurely pace, which to me is very pleasant. And the same thing with tearing a game down, you know, if if I'm trying to rush to clear a table off, that's no fun. But if I have a little bit of free time to slowly put the game away, you know, get really fiddly with all the little bags and making sure everything gets in just the right spot, I actually think that that is a pleasant experience. What about you, Tim? Chris, I agree with you. I actually really can enjoy setting up and tearing down a game. Now, I don't like a game that has a lot of setup and tear down like a lot of setup time when it's something you're like, hey, we're, we got a you know a whole game weekend now we got to spend 15 minutes setting it up. But if I have the time, if I know a game night's going to happen and I know the game that's going to be set up, I'm happy to sit out, 
set up the game, take my time. When everybody's done playing, I'm like, you guys don't worry about it. Don't help me put it away. I'll put it away later. And I'm happy to kind of put things away later. I actually enjoy that experience as well, as long as there's not the pressure of people waiting for me to get it ready. But I think the one I answered, which I also enjoy, is punching and learning them. And this kind of uh, also is conditional. When I get a new game, I love opening up that box, starting to punch out the components and separate the components and things like that. And I actually enjoy the experience of like going through the setup in the rule book. Usually when I open a new game, I punch it out and then I'll just go through the setup and kind of get it out on the table. And then learning it can be a job, but it's usually, it doesn't feel like a job if it's a new game that I'm excited to try and I can just take my time. I might learn it over a night or two. It feels like a job when it's like it's an obligation. Hey, we've got to we got to get ready for a game night on Tuesday night to talk about this game and play it and record it, record about it. Like that can feel like a job. Sometimes I feel like I'm rushed into it or things like that. But I enjoy the process if it's a game that came to my house. I've been excited for it. I'm waiting for it. And I don't have any rush on it. I enjoy that whole process. That's fun for me. I'm going to jump in here again and say I totally agree with you guys. The setup and the teardown can be a lot of fun and just a methodical meditative process. I enjoy that so much. Looking at all the little components. Oh, look at this guy. He's got a little spear and has a little symbol in the spear. I wonder what that means. And then learning the game can be a pleasant experience as well. There's been a couple of rule books lately that have just I've turned my hair out over and that could be frustrating as heck. But when you break into a game, you set it all up, you get the rule book out, you start going through the motions, you see how it all works. That's such a pleasant experience too, especially if the rule book is beautiful, has great examples, and it can spell it out for a not so bright guy like me. If I can figure that out, I'd love putting the pieces together and making that all happen. So when I said crafting, I think I was initially thinking, and I'm going to redo my earlier answer. When I said crafting, I think it was like a buying a folded space or like a wooden components thing, something I know I can put together put my little pieces in so I don't have to deal with little Ziploc baggies to make it all organized. Star Wars Rebellion, for instance, I have this uh, this beautiful balsa wood set that I glued together, little foamies for all these little components to go in. Everything's all organized. You open up the box, you pop everything out, and it's ready to play in five minutes rather than 30 minutes. That is fun to me, getting that stuff all ready. And I think maybe up next might be painting the little figurines, paint my little toys, my little dolls, so they're all cute and ready to go and look amazing out on the table. Uh, I think I could get into that. I haven't done it yet, but it might be in the future. I actually bought all the stuff to do it, right? I, I want to paint Wonderland's War because it seems like those kind of big goofy minis are going to be great to paint. And I bought the paints and I bought the painting pad and I bought the primer and all of that stuff. And the first day I went to like, I pulled out my primer and I pulled one of my minis <laughs> and I was like, wait, I don't have a something to hold it with. <laughs> so then I had to get sticky tack and I, then I, I get the sticky tack, but I haven't actually tried to pull it on primer again. So at some point so I've got a drawer full of stuff ready to paint mini. So I don't know. I feel like it's one of those things where like, I feel like this way with house projects, right? Where if it's a job I've done before, I can jump right in and I'm, I feel comfortable about it. If it's a job I haven't done before, I put it off because I, it's a lot of thinking and planning and trying to figure out how to do it and worried that I'm going to do it wrong. Right. But then once I actually get in there and start to do it, I was like, okay, this isn't so bad. And I feel like minis are going to be the same way. Like probably get that first one primed and I was like, oh, that wasn't so bad. Let me prime the rest of them. And then I'll get that first one painted and then it'll, it'll probably be fun and meditative and, and fun to do. But I just have to actually take the, the leap and get into my comfort zone with it. Yeah, I totally get that. I mean, it's like the barrier to entry on these things. It's like, it seems like it should be so simple. And once you learn it, once you get the stuff and do all of that, it probably is not easy, but relatively simple. But holy cow, the prep to do all that, oh man, that that scares me to death. 
I always tell myself, just think of all those dumb kids in games work, workshops buying minis and painting them for decades. Like, we're as smart as those kids. We can do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So we had some uh, fun answers on this one. So Never Say Die said, I'm always inspired by the creative ingenuity that goes into a game's creation. And you get to watch it unfold once you get it home. Punching it out and perusing the rules, finding the good teach vids. I love the shop, but mostly because it builds the anticipation of the punch and learn. Monica, who over on Facebook said, I love to paint and do crafty things so I can buy my two hobbies of playing and painting miniatures or making little component storage boxes out of clay or other materials. Super mm. crafty there. That's that's awesome. That's cool. Jason said, the morning after we just had a game night, I like to go in our game room before anyone is awake, turn on Spotify and put everything back in its place. I call it cardboard <laughs> therapy. It's my quiet time and I cherish it every time. Hot cup of tea, reorganizing and revisiting. Love it. That was so romantic to me. I love that experience as well. That's that's that, that makes me happy to just be up there putting the components in the right spots when nobody else is around. I don't feel stressed about, you know, like having to entertain them. It's fun. I love hearing that. <laughs> D20 Woodworking said, you all play your games? Yeah, come on, D20 Woodworking. Get out there, get your games played. And then Kellen from the Board Game Barrage podcast said, getting rid of them and not a joke tweet is his favorite thing to do. But then he said, researching is my other favorite. They're not always buying, but I guess that's connected. So yeah, I mean, I I agree. Like, I don't, I like to call a collection too. There's something that's peaceful about saying, there's a game on my shelf that doesn't make me happy. And I've made the decision to move it off. What I don't enjoy about it is the actual process of finding a new home for it. Trying to set up either like, you know, find a buyer, list it online. All of that stuff isn't fun. Making the decision to get out of my collection and move it to a space where it's not on my coal shelf, that makes me happy. And then my like happy shelf, my good shelf is a better place. Like that's a good thing for me. And then Jazz Paladin said... And by the way, this uh, this comment on Twitter was blocked. It said something about like, if you click on this, you might see something that's uh, that's risque or, you know, obnoxious or whatever. But Jazz Paladin said, I chose painting only because there was an option for stroking and crossing them, <laughs> which wasn't too bad. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I guess Twitter was watching out for my better well-being here. All right. Well, <laughs> that will wrap up that conversation. Let's get into a description of Tyrants of the Underdark. In Tyrants of the Underdark, two to four players are power-hungry despots looking to recruit minions, conquer territory, and gain influence in the subterranean world of the Underdark. For those who don't play Dungeons & Dragons, the Underdark is a dangerous underground realm populated by a race of dark, evil elves known as the Drow, which I might add, are not friendly folks, so players beware. Gameplay is an integration of board-based area control with actions dictated by a deck building mechanism. As with many deck builders, players begin with a starter deck of really weak cards that provide for a couple of basic resources. Power, which is used to put out troops, and influence, which is the currency players will use to buy new and more powerful cards. All of this card play is in service of the game's basic goal, take control of various locations throughout the Underdark by any means necessary. Though difficult to do, that part of the game is fairly simple. Each location and the paths between them have circles where troops can be deployed. Have the most troops in a location? You control that location, and you get any corresponding benefits. Occupy all the spaces in the location? You have absolute control and get even more powerful benefits. As the game progresses, players will have the opportunity to duke it out over these locations for victory points, and will also build their score by killing enemy troops buying more powerful cards, 
and by promoting cards to their inner circle, which takes them out of play, but increases their end game point value. When either the market deck runs out or a player runs out of troops, the game ends. Points are then tallied and the player with the most points wins. Tyrants of the Underdark was designed by Peter Lee, Rodney Thompson, and Andrew Veen and is published by Gale Force 9. Thanks, Chris. Hey, just a quick note on this. I think the designers, or at least Peter Lee on this game, also designed Lords of Waterdeep, which is another Dungeons & Dragons-based uh, Euro, you know, modern board game. I believe he's also part of the Prospero Hall Collective. So he's a, a, a very prolific designer and kind of fits well, well within that mold, I think, taking an IP game and making a fairly streamlined game out of it. So this was all of our first play tonight. We played on Tabletop Simulator. This is a game I've wanted to play for a while. In fact, it was on my last year's top five games I want to play list, which is another list we're going to be putting together in just a couple of weeks. So I wanted to squeak this one under, in under the wire. But let's jump into the gameplay and mechanisms of Tyrants of the Under. Yeah, so there's really two main mechanisms here. You got your deck building and you got your area control. I'll start with the deck building. It's uh, simple. Like you said, Chris, in the rules description, you got 10 crap cards to start with. You get five in your hand. You play those five out, do the stuff it says. And uh, you're putting guys on the board as part of that area control stuff or buying better cards to uh, make your deck better next time it comes around in your hand. So the simplicity here is freaking amazing. I loved how streamlined and how simple it was. So speak to the deck building a little bit more. There's a multitude of decks you can use. I think there's a few expansions, different type of cards and different effects they had. I think we just used the starter, the recommended starter decks since it was all our first time playing. So, you know, the cost goes up to seven, I think eight, maybe there's a nine cost card in there and those cards do better things, whether it's remove a troop or assassinate a troop, put more troops out, remove a white troop, put your guy in, supplant. There's a few keywords here and there, but the deck building was, it's if you played any kind of other deck builder, you'll understand this right away and you'll be able to glide right into this game. And I think that helped all of us get right into it. And like Adam said, there are exactly two mechanisms at play here. He talked about one, so I'll talk about the other. The other is the area control, which is similarly very simple. I mean, it really does come down to there are just a bunch of spots on the board that you can fill in and you get points for filling in those spots and, and holding on to them. There's not even combat, so you don't even have to worry about you know, you move into a spot and then everybody fights at the end of the round, you don't actually have any combat at all. The only way that you can get rid of another person's troop is by assassinating them. And that just takes them off the board. Uh, there's no comparison of power, no, no comparison of strength like you'd normally have in an area control game where you're fighting. Here, you just use an action to take somebody off the board. And then you can use another action to put troops out onto the board. So Super streamlined, very simple, basically a lot of give and take. I, maybe I'm just talking about my own experience here because Steve and I spent the entire game <laughs> kind of going back and forth. I'll take one of his guys, he takes one of my guys and back and forth and back and forth. But the point there mostly being that this is not the kind of area control where you're going around building up your strength and then having battles. Your strength really is just about taking other people off the board as an action and then putting out new troops as an action. This game is really hard for me to talk about it's interesting because there's something about it that is nice it was super streamlined if you played any deck builder as adam mentioned you're gonna have a feel for this game it, it didn't do anything unique from a deck building perspective 
theory control was almost too simple. There wasn't a lot of interesting interactions there. There was interactions. You had to watch what other players were doing. You had an opportunity to take these kind of control tokens or major control to stop them from gaining points and getting uh, influence on their turns and things like that. And then there was this, uh, in the area control, there was this uh, kind of fake dummy player that's out there that you can also mess around with and defeat. So it's it's hard for me to get enthusiastic about a game that is so simple and it has been done a billion times before. But, you know, I also still get enthusiastic about playing something like Star Realms or Hero Realms or Clank, which I talked about last week, which is is not that much different. I mean, this is this is really just an enhanced version of something like Star Realms. It's giving you the same exact deck building mechanism, but it's adding some extra stuff in there. It's it's in some ways that's good. It's giving you some more things to do, some more things to think about, but in some ways that's that can also be bad because it's basically making a longer game out of what is fairly heavily luck-based and and fairly simple and quick. But I I will say that I I really had a fun time with this first play. I thought it was fun. The deck building was fun with it. It was fun to watch my deck turn from these stupid little three assassins or or whatever they were in the, you know, seven cards that gave me influence, stum little deck and evolved fairly quickly into a deck that I enjoyed every time the hand came out and I got some variety in what it was doing and I got to do some fun things on the board. So it's hard for me to even reconcile my feelings for how simple this was and how little discovery and exploration there was in this game versus that I still had a fun time playing it. What did you guys think? Did it pay off? How do you reconcile this? Like, how do you how do you feel about a game that didn't do anything unique for you? Well, the one thing it did that I thought was unique was four players can do this deck building game. A lot of these games, Star Realms and Hero Realms, it's basically two players going back and forth. Maybe Clank is a little more four playery, but here you had this interesting way to interact where all four players could interact. So I thought that was a nice touch via the area control mechanism. Yeah, that did it for me. And I feel like if we were in person, even on TTS, the game was lightning quick. Uh, unless you're Chris, you had nowhere to put your dudes down. Then it probably slowed down. <laughs> yeah, I'll come back to that. I'd be really curious to see what some of the other decks look like. Because my, my complaint that I had was that the deck building mechanisms here, the actions on the cards were almost too simple. They're, they weren't even, like I compare it to uh, Star Realms. And in Star Realms, there are so many different things that you can do. And you just didn't have those options here. But the difference is when I'm playing Star Realms, I'm playing with a whole bunch of expansion content. And that may be the same thing here. It may be that there's a bunch of the other decks get factored in and all of a sudden you have more interesting things to do. But, you know, I just didn't, I just didn't think that the, the actions that the cards let you take were, were very interesting. Well, in Star Realms, you have three things you can do. You get attack, you get to buy, or you get shields. And that's all that is on the no, base no, deck no, of cards, no, no, no. essentially. No, no, no. You you get to draw extra cards. You can you get scrap, to... you can draw, you can... And so in these base decks, you have the same things. You have promote, which is like scrapping. You have You can draw extra cards if you get the right cards. You've got assassinate, you've got replace, or whatever the... The term is on that. You've got ones that only target white troops. So I think it is a similar level of complexity of a base Star Realms deck. But I agree. I think that it would be fun to check out some of those other decks, see if it adds a little bit more variety to it. Yeah, I don't know. Again, it's hard for me to talk about because it is almost too simple, but still kind of fun and something I I kind of want to go back and play like right now and see how it goes. One little mechanism we haven't uh, talked about much that this game does different because of that area control element is the spy. There's a little spy you can send out there to these different areas and give you a little bit of influence. He's not directly attackable. Well, 
you can get to him in, in a, a little bit more difficult kind of way. But anyway, you put the spy out there and he lets you do some things. He gives you adjacency so you can put some of your troops out there and then you can bring him back and draw some cards or you can, you know, can meddle with other people's plans just a little bit. So that's kind of on the fringy outskirts of the area control mechanism. I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah, I don't even have much to say about the spies because I <laughs> really had the opportunity to use them. It would have been more interesting if it did something other than just create adjacency. Because one of the things that I didn't talk about in the rules explanation that's very important is adjacency. You can only put troops out in an area next to the one that you own unless you have a spy in an area. And those guys you can put all over the board and then you can use those the spy as a, as a way to get adjacency. And adjacency actually ends up being pretty impactful in this game. Because what I found happening, I didn't get enough cards that let me assassinate somebody else's troops. And so not too long into the game, I filled in all the spots around me and I got blocked in by other people. And so I would have a turn where I could place five guys if I wanted to. I could put five troops out on the map, but I didn't have a single damn space that I could go to. And so the adjacency killed me because I couldn't, I didn't have adjacency to any place where there were open spaces. So it is something you really have to pay attention to in this game. Well, I think this leads to my first point is that just like Star Realms, you can have a bad run. You can just have like the the opponents are drawing the best cards in the market and you're not getting anything. And Chris had that, right? He had the experience in this game, but this was our game night game. This was our game night anchor tonight. It was our hour long game where everyone is excited to sit down and play a new game. And Chris just got crappy draws all night long. I never got more than four buys, so he wasn't getting to buy any of the interesting cards or maybe he just made bad decisions. I don't know. You know, it just, you could tell that Chris was frustrated, but I think this could happen. And, you know, this can happen with any game where you've got a decent amount of luck in it. The rest of us, I think, had interesting things to do, interesting experiences, and never felt blocked out. You know, you don't have to have a card that assassinates. You can also buy cards that just give you more power because three power will let you do an assassinate. So there are a lot of opportunities to kind of stretch out and do different things. I got to experience that. I had fun with the actions that I got to do once I, the last few rounds where I was playing a hand of five new cards that were all doing fun and interesting things. I was like, yeah, this is cool. I can't wait to see what the next game plays out like with different play. But man, I would be frustrated if I was basically playing my starter cards for the next, you know, five rounds and and still not doing anything very interesting. I could see that happening. But, you know, it is, it was a pretty short game too, you know, even for an anchor game. I mean, I bet this is a 45 to 60 minute game for, with four players um, once everybody knows it. So really short for a kind of a full length game. Yeah, I think I think there's enough value there to be worth revisiting and, and checking it out. One thing I liked about the deck building here was there wasn't any of those uh, the Star Realms cards that make other players discard cards. Chris's favorite tactic <laughs> making me discard all my cards i just sit there i can't do anything it's the next guy's turn uh aside from that i don't have much else for mechanics what about you guys yeah i actually now that adam said that tim was saying before that there's only you know, you're basically doing the same things in this game that you're doing in star realms i can think of at least three mechanisms including the one that you just talked about that you have in star realms base deck that you don't have in this one <laughs> and again i i don't know what, what there there are more decks that go with this one that are not, I, I don't know what they consider it, if it's base deck or non-base deck, but it comes with four decks, four half decks, and you put two together to make whatever you're going to play with. And maybe the other ones had more things to do. But, you know, one big complaint that I have, and, well, actually, let me, let me go back a second. I have to separate out here my experience in this particular game versus the game itself. I had a horrible game tonight. I was miserable the whole time. 
because I just nothing was coming out in my hand the right way that I'm trying to separate out from the game itself, which I have some concerns about. But I think there is a point to be made in there about the ability to get locked into a game that's going to take you an hour. I mean, so you could have a five game, you know, five minute game of Star Realms if you're playing on the app and probably a 15 minute game of star realms. And if you end up with some crappy draws, no big deal. You're sitting there for 15 minutes and then it's all over and you, you go home. It still makes me angry though. Yeah. Well, me too. <laughs> <laughs> me too. As opposed to sitting there getting, you know, crappy draw after crappy draw in an hour long game. We are like, Oh, I can't do anything. It's unfortunate that can happen. There are games where you have that same issue, but it's a short game, like a standard deck builder. There are some games where you have a longer game, but the cards are not the end-all, be-all, like, say, Clank. There's lots of things you can do in Clank that keep it interesting, even if you don't have the best cards. So this game, you're very dependent on the cards, and it's a longer game. So depending on how you feel about that, about the ability for you know luck to kill you, you know that, that could have an impact on your experience. I think the Assassinate cards are very similar to the boots in Clank. If you don't get any boots and clank, it's not a very interesting game. If you don't get any assassinate cards or power cards in here, you're not going to do a whole lot in the game. So I think you can have a similar experience. But yeah, 100%, right? I totally agree with you on this. I think there's a risk of it being a bad game for one person. But in a game night, if you've got three people sitting around for 45 or 60 minutes, set it up, play again. Likely the person's not going to have bad luck on the second time and it'll it'll probably be fine. Well, all right, let's, let's jump into the production and theme of this game. First of all, the theme is Dungeons and Dragons based, which has a long storied history. I'm fine with the high fantasy theme of Dungeons and Dragons. It doesn't get me too excited here. I just I'm ready to move on to something else at this point. So the theme did not get me too psyched up. But let me talk about production. It was okay. It was it was fine. Um, It was pretty clear user interface. But the map, I think I was I was kind of disappointed in it. It just felt so bland. These you know, white circles all over the place you're just putting troops into. No artwork, no theme into where you're moving around, what these locations that you're taking over, you know, what they mean. There's no story in them at all. So from that perspective, I was pretty disappointed in the map. It was it was fine, though. It was usable. If you're into apostrophes and conjunctionized location names, <laughs> this is the game for you. <laughs> you got lots of Klingon style shock sisterasni. And like, I don't know, that's just one of the examples. I can't read these other ones, but get your apostrophe pronunciation and pauses and verbal hiccups ready when you're reading the names on these. Yeah, Tim, I agree with you. The the production is uh is isn't bad. It's nothing special, and the theme doesn't get me jazzed at all. Dungeons and Dragons, I know some people are into it, but I mean, you got some elves. We got a lot of pointy ears, angry-looking elves, but they're not called elves. And then you've got some dragons too. That's about all I saw. The art isn't bad. It's it's nice. It has a yeah, it's yeah it has a dark tone and a dark um, timbre to it, which can draw you in a little bit. Same with the background of the game board itself. I thought that's pleasant to look at. I have to agree with you for the most part. I want to talk about these little pieces on the first printing there's a little plastic tokens for your troops and your spies i think on the second printing they went with these cardboard chits that you just kind of flip over uh not as exciting doesn't look as pleasant to me as the the first edition with these plastic pick little troops and stuff wow downgrading to cardboard chits is that what we've come to no so in summary art okay production of the board okay figures and or chits Okay, I mean, that kind of sums it up. I really don't have anything else to add to it. That is pretty much the story there. Yep, agreed. 
Okay. All right. Well, let's jump into the final question. Would you request to play this game again? I don't know if I would request to play it again. I would happily play it again if it was there and ready to go. I'd like to, you know what? I'd like to take a look at some of these other decks and see what's in there. See if I can make Chris discard his whole hand so he can, you know, only have one influence each round instead of between two and four. <laughs> Maybe there's some more there. I feel like there could be some more fun interaction with the spy and troops and moving around the map and making some fun things happen. I feel like we got a little taste of what's out there and some of the expansions are highly rated, but who's going to buy the expansion unless you already like the base game anyway. So yeah, I wouldn't request to play it, but if it was out there ready to go, I'd give it another shot. Yeah, I'm with Adam. I, it was not an entirely unpleasant experience. It was um, it was okay. I wouldn't request it again. If you guys said, hey, let's play that again, I'd probably try to talk you out of it. But <laughs> if you said, no, 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 I really want to play this game, I'd probably be okay with it. I wouldn't I wouldn't be like, ah, I'm out of here. I'd probably say, okay, I'll, I'll live through it. Um, I think, speaking a little bit more broadly, I think the issue with this game that makes me not that enthusiastic about it, because nothing about it was bad it was just that it's kind of like a diner you know it did a few different things but it didn't do any of them great (laughs) it had deck building but it had mediocre deck building and it had area control but it was like this really kind of mediocre almost subpar area control and so it didn't excite me i mean maybe someone gets excited just at the idea of having the combination of a board-based game with deck building because that's kind of fun, right? But then go play Clank or go play Dune. So there are much better implementations of that. And this one, I I just thought it didn't get any, it didn't hit any of the notes right enough that it made it feel unique or interesting to me. But again, it was not entirely unpleasant either. I enjoyed my play of this and I'm glad I finally got a chance to play it. But I couldn't really say I'd ask to play it again. It didn't, it, it was not uh, unique enough or fun enough or exciting enough to differentiate itself from, uh, you know, a hundred other games. And Chris, you kind of nailed it, right? Like this game was probably really exciting in 2016 when we had Dominion and Ascension and Star Realms. And hey, now we get to add a board to a game and you can either do this or you can do Clank about that era. And this added some pretty interesting player interaction. It was pretty fun. But now you've got games like Lost Runes of Arnak and, and Dune Imperium that also take deck building into a new world and add a board game to it. And Tyrants of the Underdark was solid. It was fine. But there are also other area control games I'd rather play over Tyrants of the Underdark versus as well as other deck building games that I'd rather play. So I had fun with it. I would like to, I'd be happy to play it again, right? I'll, I'll say that. I would be happy to play it again, try some other decks to see how the games play it. Because deck building's like that. You know, like every game you play, that's the point. You can kind of build up a different engine. Different cards are going to come up in the row. You can get a couple cool cards that come up. And it, and it can be fun. So I, I had fun with it. Steve was just going gaga over this game. He loved it. I wouldn't be shocked, you guys, if the next time we got together in person, Steve brings a copy of Tyrants in the Underdark because he's going to go pick this up and, and play with his friends. And that's cool. If he's excited about it, I would love to play this game. I, I'd be happy to play this game again. But I, I don't see myself asking for it. I definitely wouldn't go out and purchase it. If somebody had it on their shelves, I'll probably find 10 other games that I'd rather play that they have on their shelves. It's not a problem with the game. I think the game is a great streamlined kind of intro introduction to both deck building and area control that works just great, just fine, easy to teach, just easy to jump into. It's got a lot going for it in 2016 for somebody just getting into the hobby. It doesn't have a ton going for me right now. I like your diner analogy, Chris. I'm going to go back to that. I feel like this is exactly right. If uh, if you're 
looking for a cheap, quick meal. It might be okay. Or maybe that the waffle irons at the exact right temperature and the waffle comes out perfect and fluffy and the syrup's like <laughs> amazing. It's got the fluffy butter today and it just hits. It's going to be amazing. But that's like one out of every 20 times or something. Otherwise, you might just go just to hang out with your friends just for somewhere to sit and kick back and have a little chat for a while. So I'd really like that diner analogy, Chris. I'm going to run with that uh, in my head all through the night, I think. And sometimes that, that sometimes that coffee, that diner coffee can be amazing. But, you know, a lot of the time it's going to be a little yeah. bit burnt. Maybe you got to put a little too much creamer in there to kind of justify making it good. So uh, that is a that is a very, very good analogy for this game. And sometimes it's just the place you want to go with your buddies after you've been hanging out all night. And you want to get some quick chow at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, totally. Totally. All right. Well, that will wrap up the conversation on Tyrants of the Underdark. Let's jump into a Tyrants themed cocktail and some games we've had on the table. All right, welcome back, Chris. What are we drinking while we're playing Tyrants of the Underdark? So tonight's game had a lot of elves in it, and that's great. But these drow, they are nasty. They look ugly. Their their factions are things like guile and greed and stuff like that. I mean, nobody likes these guys. So I don't want to talk about the drow, but I do want to talk about a completely different kind of elf and what kind of elf is better at this time of year than not just above ground elves. I mean, we're not talking about high fantasy elves. We're talking about Santa's elves. <laughs> now, I know I'm straying pretty far from the game theme here, but, you know, stick with me. It's the holidays. I'd rather spread cheer than malice. So this week I present to you the naughty elf. And what makes this drink so cool is that it really does defy expectations. Most people would think of holiday drinks as tending toward the creamy, chocolatey, minty, but the Naughty Elf actually goes in exactly the opposite direction. It's a little bit tropical and a little bit fruity. It's got grapefruit and cranberry juices along with pomegranate and orange liqueurs. And it's got some spiced rum thrown in there. And believe it or not, this drink actually does taste like the holiday, even without the chocolate, the mint, and the cream. And that's probably because it harkens back to the olden days when punch was really the royalty of the holiday party. I can't picture a Victorian celebration without a bowl of punch. And in fact, it's been a holiday standby of mine for years. And something about the spiced rum in there really does make it feel appropriate for the holidays. And so, you know, elves, holidays. But anyway, that's the beauty of this drink is that it scales up wonderfully. So it tastes really good, but it's also great if you want to prepare it for a party. You just kind of throw it in a big bowl or just do it for a special treat that you can share with your friends on your next holiday season game night. This is the drink for you. But be careful because when it comes to elves, there is a thin line between the naughty and the drow. All right. Well, we're going to talk about some games that have been on our table this week. And uh, I will start. I got a chance to play Tyletum or Tyletum. And I did some research on this. I was trying to understand how this was actually pronounced. <clears throat> and the bad, the bad news is I don't have an answer for you. I sat down to get this taught to me by somebody who played it a few times and had watched some playthroughs. That was the first question I asked, like, how do you pronounce this? Is it just, just tell me? He said, well, I guess the right way to pronounce it is either Tyletum or Tyletum. <laughs> so that's what I went in with. More, I did a little more research. I did some Googling and I found a board game geek 
uh, question where somebody asked, how do you pronounce this? And somebody gave some answers about the roots, the Latin roots of the words and where it came from, but no pronunciation to go with it. So that wasn't helpful. And I watched the, uh, the how to play video from Gaming Rules and Gaming Rules started right out by saying, apparently you can pronounce it either way, pronounce it however you want to. So for the rest of this this discussion, we're going to go with Tyletum. It is no longer pronounced Tyletum. I'm glad to hear that. It is forever pronounced Tyletum in my vocabulary. So this is the latest game from the Italian board game designers, Simone Luciani and Daniel Tashini, who we've talked about a lot on this show. We like a lot of the games that they've created. And so I was really excited to get a chance to play this this weekend. Now, this game is interesting because it is part of their T-series of games but it is the most bland from a thematic perspective because it fits right into classic like late medieval Europe. Um, there's, it's not even in, in Mesoamerica. It's not in Egypt. It, this is just right out there. It's a bland old Euro. It's a bland old board, brown board, bland looking white dudes uh, on the, the components. It is just, a, it's a bland Euro. So that was disappointing. You're putting me to, you're putting me to sleep, Tim. You're putting me to sleep over here. <laughs> I know, I know. But, but now that we've gotten past that, let me just say that this was my favorite of these designers games. No, so after what you just said, that can't be possible. <laughs> I, I get it, right? I mean, like theme matters, production matters. But in this case, the, the, comp- the, the gameplay, the mechanisms that were added in here it was a really fun game. And I only played this game once so far. I'll just give you a really rough overview of a couple of the things that I really liked about it. I won't go into all the details here. But the the game board is laid out like this. There's a big old map on the right-hand side, a map of Europe with a bunch of famous European cities on it. Paris is there. London's there. London's there. Tyletum is there. Apparently an old, I don't know, Belgium city or something like that. Um, there's, there's, you know, cities in Germany, whatever. There's a whole bunch of European cities on the map there. And on the map, everybody starts in the city of Tyledum, and you all have a little building there, a little house. And you have two other components on that map. So you've got a compass, which is your architect, and then you've got a little carriage, which I guess represents your builder. Because you're going to be moving around this map and either placing other buildings in cities or placing monuments, which is what the architects do. And so, you know, you're going to be moving around these cities and leaving components out on the board. But... Then you also have over on the top left-hand side of the board, this is where the most interesting thing comes in. You guys know I love action selection. I love unique action selection mechanisms. And this is one of my favorite. It's a round thing with six sections on it, kind of a pie with six sections on it. Um, Very similar to what we might've seen in Terracotta Army with six, you know, like a a round circular thing, but also very similar to Tekenu, which I know you guys haven't played. But essentially, this is a dice drafting game. And so what happens is you, you know, based on the number of players at the start of the round, you roll a whole bunch of dice and the dice are six sided dice and they are different colors. There's a rotating center in this board and it's going to rotate each round. Uh, It's going to tell you where you place each number, each pip value of dice. So ones are going to go in one section, twos in the next section, threes in the next section, etc. But the dice are different colors, and those dice represent the types of resources you can collect and use in this game. Uh, The resources are ridiculously close in color and hard to distinguish from each other. So there is rope, which is like a light blue. There is anvils, which is like a slightly grayer light blue. And then there is stone, which is a darker gray, but very hard to tell apart. And then there was one other food I think was pink. So that was the one easy one to tell apart from each other. Um, But... 
So at the beginning of the round, you're going to play, and I think it's played over four rounds or five rounds, but you're going to roll all these dice and you're going to place them based on the pip values that they roll into these different sections on this pie. It's a dice drafting game. So you're going to take an action on each turn, which is going to let you take one of these dice off one of these sections of the pie. And the first thing is you get the number of resources of that color based on the pip value. So that's exciting, right? Right away, you could get six food, for example. Totally exciting, Tim. <laughs> or you could get six anvils. But then based on the pip value, you're going to get seven minus that pip value in actions on the inner circle. And so if you got six food, then you're only going to get one of whatever action that her particular number is related to that turn. So basically, you're going to either get a lot of resources and very few actions or, you know, a lot of actions and very few resources or some combination of the two. So it's a fun decision. It's an interesting decision. The actions are things like moving your carriage around the board and leaving houses out there, which have some different effects. Moving your architects around the board and leaving pillars around, which have some different effects. Uh, another one of the actions is to recruit these workers that are going to go into your houses. You all have an individual player board that have these little house segments set up on there. And you can either place, depending on which segments, and it could be two, 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 three, or four. So there are something like that. It's Maybe it's one, one, two, and three. I don't know. But there's different segments. So the houses are different amounts of people you can put in them. So you're going to collect people. Now, the people are these little tiles. And this is one of the other interesting things about the action selection, because the first person to take a dice out of one of those segments of the pie in a round is also going to get a bonus tile, which was randomly seated at the beginning of the round. And there's all these bonus tiles all over the map as well. The actions you can take as you're moving around the map are to collect these bonus tiles. When you're collecting people, they're kind of bonus tiles. They're going to go into this little storage. So you have a, a storage of four people on your player board. And that's the most you can keep there. But in this storage, you can have all kinds of things. You can have people that you're getting there. You can have like resource benefits that you can collect. Anyway, you're going to take these people. You're going to fill them into the sections of the house. If you fill up the section of the house and then you also put a little shield at the bottom, then you make your actions stronger. There's a lot of fun Yoroi things going on here. The action selection's fun. The production is bland. There's nothing I can explain here that's going to make this game sound fun. But I'm just going to tell you the game was fun. It was great fun decisions every time. It was ugly to look at. It was disappointingly, blandly themed, but it was a very, very fun game. Now, when I was playing the game, I was saying to myself, like, I'm having a great time playing this game, but I don't ever want to teach this game. And I think the only reason for that was one of the guys that was playing with us really, really struggled with this turn. Like, he just couldn't get what was going on, and it was taking very long times for us to take his turn. I didn't really feel that way. Like, I actually, I was taught the game, I got into it pretty quickly. It was tough decisions. I didn't have a good strategy right away, but it was fun to, to learn it and discover it. And there's so much variability in this game. I think this is a great mechanism-wise game from these designers. I think thematically, it's one of the weaker ones that they've put out, but one of my favorite ones to play mechanically. So I don't know. Can I, can I recommend that game? I don't know if I can recommend that game, but I do want to go back and play it. I can say that. I, I want to be playing this game. So you talked a little bit about the uh, the rules overhead on this one. How is it, if you compare it to, what's the one, Lorenzo, the, the Magnifico? It's heavier than Lorenzo for sure. I would say it's similar to Teotihuacan or Tekenu. But it's 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 a bit heavier than like Zulkin or Lorenzo. And again, I you know we we've talked about this. I think their trend is that they're going a little bit heavier and a little bit more complexity. Right. And I think this falls in line. It might be just slightly higher on the complexity level than something like Teotihuacan. 
but not too much more complex. I bet if I was sitting there teaching it to you, it would be about the same teach. So I know you've been to a few of these tea city names. Have you been to? No, okay. <laughs> never been. Okay. Never been to Tylenum. I was excited to notice though that I had been looking at that map of Europe, and I was about I was I had been to about four of the places on that map. So that was fun. So I'm looking at the uh, the complexity ratings on BGG and Lorenzo and Tylenum are rated right about the same at about a 3.25, 3.3. I got called out on Twitter for my pronunciation of Teotihuacan, <laughs> so I, I'm not sure exactly how to do it, but whatever that game is called, the, the Teotihuacan tea game, that one is 3.77 and Barrage weighs in at a hefty, it was like 4.08 or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't really disagree. I don't agree with those, those weights at all. I think Barrage is honestly one of the lighter of the ones, and I think Lorenzo would fit within that as well. I think that Teotihuacan and Toledo are probably a little closer just because of the amount of iconography you have to teach at the beginning of the game. I mean, none of these are particularly complex concepts. Uh, I think Tylidum had a little bit more different segmented, different things you have to teach uh, aside from the iconography that made it a little bit more challenging from a teach perspective. That's what, that's my guess, but I, I haven't taught it and I only played it the one time. So maybe it feels simpler after, after the first time. I wish there was anything about what you said or what I'm seeing in the pictures on BGG that made me want to play this game. Dude, I'm telling you, the, the action selection is great. I guarantee you this game. And I kept saying this. I said this the whole game while I was playing with this people I was playing with. I was like, I will never play this game again until it's on Board Game Arena. And when it's on Board Game Arena, this game is going to be fantastic. You guys will love it. But until then, it's like a ton of components, like ton of little chits to set up all over the place. It's a heavy teach. There's no way that I'm going to like get this taught like and played with you know the people that are usually playing with me but when it's on board game arena you guys will i think you guys would actually really like this game i think it's a very very fun game and and honestly everything i said that was kind of negative about it i had as much fun exploring this game and i think there's so much variability in it that i can't wait to go back to it that i have of any of the of the italian designers games and i you know how much i've loved all of them so it really is a really cool game it's just it's just there it's a euro and, and it feels like a euro and that is the one thing that you said that maybe does sway me a little bit is that i do sort of trust your judgment on some of these games sometimes and i've been surprised before but i want to go back to the whole theme thing i mean <laughs> I, chris i'm gonna get i'm gonna get hate mail for you like harping on theme all the time I, you know what i do this i i protect you from it i don't tell you that i'm getting this hate mail but I get hate mail about this. <laughs> well, I'm glad you keep me away from it. But come on, guys. Like, really? There, there are, there's a universe of stories out there. Right. And this is the one we need to tell over and over and over again. Well, the kind of funny thing about it, too, is that the cover of the board, the cover of the game actually looks slightly festive and slightly unique. And it's basically, I guess it's something about festivities in these European, ancient, like medieval cities. And so the cover of the board is a little bit colorful. It's got these red and yellow banners hung everywhere and people kind of out there celebrating and, and at a market and purchasing and kind of like looks like a festive fair. But none of that carries through in the, in the game board at all. I mean, this game board literally looks like it was made 15 years ago. It's got very weakly illustrated like graphic design on it. I, it really was so such a letdown. I couldn't believe that they put this out in 2022. But it's such a good game that I just can't I can't hate on it too much. Yeah. All right. Well, a game with plenty of theme that I think it's pronounced chocolate, 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 chocolate factory, chocolate. 
We'll go with chocolate. <laughs> chocolate Factory is what we're going to call this one. This is by Matthew Dunstan, Brett Gilbert, and Alley Cat Games back in 2019. The same guys that did the Guild of Merchant Explorers, which has been getting a lot of hype lately. This game was introduced to me by um, economist, non-lawyer, game designer, fledgling friend, Andy Schwartz. This is on Board Game Marine. This is a fantastic game. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Uh, in this game, you're building a chocolate factory. It's played over six days, six rounds, and each round has three or four sort of phases or however you want to divvy up the round and phases and eras of board games. Each day you're given three cocoa pods, chocolate bean, cocoa pods, one at a time, and it goes on a conveyor belt, something like Curious Cargo or Furnace, where you're, you're really literally building a factory line. Anyway, you get one cocoa pod, one at a time on these conveyor belts, goes down the middle of your factory. Everybody's given a default factory that starts out the same, but there's a draft at the beginning of each round too. So you're going to draft a specialist that's associated with some other chocolate distributor or a factory part for your chocolate factory. So the conveyor belt goes down the middle of your factory. You have four slots on the top of this conveyor belt and four slots on the bottom. Where are you going to put this new part? You pick a spot and then boom, once these cocoa beans come in, you have a certain amount of coal. You use your coal to run the different machine on the cocoa pot. You're going to upgrade that. Kind of like in Lost Ruins of Arnak, there's an upgrade sequence that occurs. So it goes from cocoa bean up to a brick of the unrefined chocolate. Then you can refine that up to a Kit Kat looking bar or a Hershey looking bar. After that, you can uh, get, I think it's called like caramel or something else, a red wrapper chocolate or a yellow wrapper chocolate. And then you can go from there to a box of chocolates. And that's kind of the highest upgradable chocolate thing. So there you got your draft. One person picks either the factory part or the specialist associated with a department store. And then the next person drafts and they get to do back to back. So they get to pick their specialist and factory part right in a row. And then it goes back to the other person and they pick whatever parts are left over uh, or whatever specialists are left over. And the specialist kind of gives you a little extra bonus. And that's also the only spot you can deliver your chocolate that round, um, which is part of the in-game score. Anyway, there's a lot of forward planning here. You have to carefully use your coal to upgrade that chocolate the way you want to do. You can really shoot yourself in the foot if you're not careful, but I'm having a lot of fun playing this game. It's like furnace, but good. And with a theme, a tasty theme, huh? it's a great game. Didn't get much hype. It's from 2019. It's been kind of still in the woodwork, not quite out of the woodwork yet. But yeah, this one's fun. Have you guys heard of this? Any interest in playing it? It's on Board Game Arena. Let's do it. It seems like we're seeing a trend toward Coco-themed board games. Adam, I had heard about this game when it came out, and I heard I had heard some decent reviews of it. I don't remember much about it, but I'm looking at some pictures here. It looks really cool, and it, and it looks not too heavy, uh, fun to get into, but some interesting decisions. Is there asymmetric powers as well? I'm getting that sense. Uh, the only asymmetry that I'm aware of comes from that draft. So as you're building okay. your factory, it's you know you start off with a draft right away. You have the specialists that kind of recycle through. But once you are upgrading your factory, those parts are in there. Again, like Furnace, you have that part. It's a permanent part of your factory. Um, and you're going to draft five times. It starts on a Monday and ends on a Saturday. So however many drafts that, that ends up being. I'm looking at the first picture on Board Game Geek and I'm seeing kind of a full layout of someone's player area or board. And then there's like a little card next to it and it's supervisor. Mm -hmm. And then it says benefit each time you load the conveyor. So that 
character is something that's going to draft and go back. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's a, okay, that's cool. one of the specialists. So each round, there's different specialists with kind of increasing. So you may not necessarily even draft a specialist that round. It's kind of like one different thing you could do. Exactly. Oh, that sounds really fun. Yeah, this game, it looks fun. I, I've kind of been intrigued by it since I heard about it. So yeah, invite me to a game on Board Game Rain. I'd love to play this. Looks like a good I'd game. like to try this one too. Engine building in this one looks like it would be a lot of fun. But I'm curious, Adam, you compared this one to Furnace which is a game that feels like it could have been tilted over into being a much better game than it was by something. I'm not sure what. What is it about this one that makes you think of Furnace yet is different enough that makes you enjoy it more? Chocolate. Other than the chocolate, that's good too. Yeah, the theme The theme is one thing. Like Honestly, the the Cocoa Pods and Up Your Kit Kats and Hershey Bars, like that's cool. It's all stuff recognizable mm-hmm. and like very approachable as opposed to some like smoggy <laughs> factory who wants to do that. I like the conveyor belts and the forward planning. Once a part is in your factory, you can't move it. You can place a new part over top of it. Um, There's one mode of furnace where it's like that. Once the part's in there, you can't shift it around. You can insert parts between, but the mode we played, you can just shift it all around. You got to restart it. So it's, it's a little cleaner, I think, than furnace. It does away with a little asymmetric auction or whatever, which is kind of neat in furnace. But here it has the draft, which is just as cool. You're deciding what part you're going to do and what little specialist you're going to use to help you optimize the chocolates you're going to make. And there's order fulfillment too. At all points, you're going to have these, you know, a little delivery, a medium delivery and a big delivery. And if more points for the bigger delivery, but it's a little harder to accomplish, um, a lot of elements go into the final scoring, but they all kind of make sense. It's how much money you can make. Um, and also there's competitions from the most deliveries to those department stores, the big stores. So that all goes in. It's like a almost like a little area control game for those department stores. But you can also concentrate on your little corner stores, they're called, your own order fulfillment, your personal goals, to get yourself some more money and, and some in-game points. So a lot going on in a little package with a very pretty production here in Chocolate Factory. Am I hearing a little bit of smartphone ink in there too? Um, you know, it doesn't have the kind of the network sprouting out of smartphone ink and there's not kind of the tech. It's different. It's very different, I think, than Smartphone Inc. As far as rule simplicity, that's still there. But the forward planning in this one is a lot different. And again, I said you can really shoot yourself in the foot if you're not careful with your cacao management and your refined chocolate management. You can really hurt yourself. But once that clicks, you start to see where it's going to go. Okay, two spaces down. I'm going to send this guy to turn that into coal. I can use that coal to run this machine. I can turn that into two wrapper chocolates and I can upgrade that next step into two box chocolates, two more wrapper chocolates, a Kit Kat and a Hershey bar. Boom, I can deliver that out to these guys. You can use two of those, turn that into more cool. You can see it just starts going crazy once all this stuff starts clicking together and fits in spot. It feels good when you're running your factory efficiently and you've thought it through. And uh, Board Game Arena has a very nice interface. The undo button is right there and it can rewind everything for you, Chris. So you would love this one. Go back and... <laughs> I love rewind buttons. So that's there and is incredibly useful in a game like this. That looks fun. I'm smelling the dark chocolate in my uh, room right now. Uh, so I have one more game to talk about this week. And this is kind of a on the table and it's kind of a future take. And that is My Little Everdell. Now, this just surprisingly got announced. It's uh, PAX unplugged this weekend in philadelphia and uh, starling games just said hey yeah you can start buying this game my little everdell is a lighter version of of everdell i am 
pretty excited about this game because I've known about it for about a, maybe eight months and I haven't been able to talk about it. I uh, got an invite to just do a little play testing with it, invite my daughter in and try it out a little bit. And I had a really great time with this game. Now, I will say, first of all, that I did get invited to play test it because I am uh, Chrissy Pesky, who is one of the designers on one of the Everdell expansions. I worked with her to play test that a little bit. She's a friend of ours on Twitter. And so she sent me the prototype components and asked if we could help out with it. But also after playtesting it as a thank you note, she sent my daughter a nice signed photograph, a, an early print of some of the little, My Little Everdell art signed by Andrew Bosley and James Wilson. And so I just wanted to mention that it was really sweet of them to do that. But I just want to mention that and also say that really, you know, I didn't have that when I first played this game. And I, I do have a very positive impression of the game. So I'll mention it really quickly. Now, it's called My Little Everdell, and it's my biggest complaint about the game. For, I don't like My Little Things. I don't like the name My Little Scythe. I don't like My Little Everdell. I don't want to play My Little Catan. I don't want anything that says My Little. It makes me not want to present this to any other friends, gamers, people that want to be playing this. And it doesn't excite my daughter to play it either. So I, she actually likes Everdell. And I said, hey, should we buy My Little Everdell? And she's like, well, I like regular Everdell. I don't need to play My Little version of it. So I wish they wouldn't have done that, but they are trying to target this game towards a younger market, towards more of a family market, and that's fine. I think it's okay for that spot, but here's how the game is. So you guys know Everdell. Essentially, it's a worker placement and tableau building game. You place workers to collect resources. You spend the resources to build cards out of your hand and put them into a tableau, which is kind of an engine building thing. This game is very similar. It makes some very smart cuts to simplify it without taking away a lot of the fun. There's still worker placement. There's a few simple actions. Now there's only three resources instead of four in this game, you take the stone out of it. So there's three basic resource spaces. And then there are kind of the forest spaces in the main game, which are randomly set up at the beginning of the game. But in this case, every round you roll three dice and the dice show you what resources those particular worker placement spaces will give you. So every round it kind of changes a little bit what the most valuable spaces are. That's really simple. Everyone has three workers. You place a worker. One of the differences is that instead of choosing whether you're placing a worker or playing a card on your turn, you're placing a worker. And if you have the resources, you play a card. It's you just every time you're trying to play a card, if you can, you can do that as your second action in a turn. But instead of having a hand of cards to manage and this meadow of cards to manage, there's just always eight cards out in the tableau that you can build from. So you don't have a hand to manage at all. Every, all the cards are visible. You place a worker, you get some resources, and can I build a card? If so, then I put it into my little tableau. I've got a little player board that I just put the cards on one side or the other. A lot of them feel very similar to basic Everdell cards, but they're they're in some ways a little bit simpler. Um, you know, the, the effects are simpler. I'd say the iconography is a little bit better in this game. The size of the readability of it, the ability to translate those is a little bit simpler. There are even some cards you can build in your tableau that will give you new worker placement spaces, but those are a little bit rare. Otherwise, it's pretty similar. It's got a little bit of a race, just like Everdell does. You know, they have those objectives that you can get the events where if you're the first one to get a certain number of cards of a certain type or certain special cards, you're going to be able to uh, take an extra action to get this event. They called it a, the parade in this one. It's simpler to get to. There's always four basic parade cards out there. If you're the first person to get when you get six points, if you're the second person to get when you get three points. So it simplifies a lot of the basic things that Everdell does. But in my few plays of, of actually playing this game, I didn't feel like it actually took away a lot of the fun of what you were doing. 
And I found that the engine building was still actually pretty fascinating. The cards are out there, maybe easier decisions to make, but once they're in your, you know, in your little tableau in your city, you get bonuses when you take certain actions. You get points for doing certain things or adding extra cards to your thing. I had fun playing it. I played it with my daughter like three times when we got a chance. Uh, basically, Chrissy Pesky reached out to me and she said, hey, we're almost done playtesting this, but I just want to get one other opinion of a family that knows Everdell and has a kid in their family. So I, I printed up the components. I put them out. I played with my daughter like three times. She beat me two of the three times. But I had a fun time playing every one of them and I didn't have to help her with it. So I think it said a lot of things like she was 10 at the time. She was able to get into the components and learn the game really quickly. I had fun making the, ch- the choices on my turn every time. And yet she could still be competitive by making the simple choices that she was making, me trying to do my own thing, having fun with it. I was really impressed and surprised by how a family way game like this could still be fun for me. I think the weight of it is similar to something like Splendor or maybe even um, Dice Throne, which we played, uh, you know, the, the three of us played together recently. It's a simple little engine builder game. You guys have got to check the artwork on this if you haven't been looking at it. This is Andrew Bosley took the Everdell artwork and made it into little baby critters. And it's adorable and it's some of the best artwork he's ever done. So I, I all, all that to be said, I actually enjoyed this game. I don't know that I would pick this over Everdell if I was playing with other gamers. I probably wouldn't, but it's going to be a lighter, quicker game. I had fun playing with my daughter. I think I'd have fun playing with my family. I just ordered it for myself two nights ago after a little bit of Jack Daniels, maybe. Um, and, uh, and and I can't wait to get it. It looks great, and I can't wait to play it some more. So this is a fun, lighter version of Everdell, play in about 30 minutes, I think. And um, yeah, I, w- I, w- I would recommend it. Now, again, I only played the prototype version, but I can't wait to play the new version. But I wanted to give some early experience with it and also my excitement about what's coming. I'm looking at the art here. Tim and I you're right it's charming and I love Andrew Bosley's art to begin with and so this is great but let me be devil's advocate because what I'm hearing you say is that this game takes some of the concepts of Everdell and doesn't make it entirely family weight but just ratchets down the complexity level just a little bit is there really that much of a difference that one might buy this game instead of just buying regular Everdell then? Well, the funny thing is, is that I was thinking about this as I was playing it. And it occurred to me that a lot of the things that they streamlined were actually potentially improvements, like things that maybe shouldn't have existed in the original Everdell game in the first place. This will be a lot easier to introduce to somebody, right? The problem with Everdell is that you have seven, starting hand, five cards in your hand, and eight cards out on the table, 13 cards to think about, four resources to choose from, and several other worker placement spaces that are going to be available. It's a lot of decision points, and it's a lot of complexity to teach somebody and to help somebody get into early. And that's where this game actually does lighten it quite a bit, because you're down to three resources and only eight card choices to make at the beginning of the game. And many of those card choices are a bit simpler. So yes, you know, where this is probably a 30 minute game and Everdell is like an hour to hour and a half game um, with a you know similar number of players and a bit heavier in complexity. I think it does. Now, Everdell is probably themed poorly for its complexity level in my perspective. Like I love the theme of it, mm. but I think it's actually heavier than it looks. My little Everdell is actually the right complexity level for the for the look and feel of the game. But it's a little bit more complex than something like Splendor. You know, it's it's probably almost as easy to get into, but a little. I let me not say it's not more complex, a little bit more interesting 
than something like Splendor mm-hmm. for me. And I think that's a good thing, right? Like I'm always looking for that light to midweight engine builder that you can get out in 30 minutes and anyone can get into. And it's a nice filler uh, when you've got you know half an hour before bedtime. This could be that fit for me. Now I'll see after more, more plays, whether it's something me and my wife sit down and play together at night, or if it's only something I pull out when it's like me and my wife and my daughter want to get together and play something. But I feel like it's going to be something me and my wife might even want to get out to play when she doesn't want to sit down for a full hour long game. That sounds like a sweet spot. And the art is adorbs. I have a future take that I want to talk about very quickly. It's kind of a surprise thrown at you guys. It's also kind of a past take for me. I'm talking about Soul, Last Days of a Star. This is a game I forced on you guys a while back. It's back on Kickstarter. It's been out of print for a couple of years now. It was going for ridiculous prices there for a while. So I sold mine, cha-ching on that price spike for a little bit. And now it's back. This is a game by Ryan Spangler and Sean Spangler on uh, the publisher's Elephant Laboratories. That's their own publishing company. This is a, in my opinion, a fantastic game. Uh, up to five players can play this one. Each player is um, a civilization that has been living around the star. And now the star is dying. They're all on these arc ships, a uh, portion of each of these civilizations on these arc ships that are orbiting this star. They're sending out little sun divers, little spaceships from the arc ship. These guys go out and they make um, little formations to build different types of structures. Each of these structures can do something different for you, whether it's give you energy cubes or give you more momentum to help you escape the orbit of the star or resources to get around. You can use other people's resources for a, for a little toll. They get energy if you use their resources. At the end of the game, if you have the most momentum, the star explodes and that shoots the faction with the most momentum away from the star and they win so it's called a lot of people call it abstract i don't know i don't know if that's right i think it's a very thematic very beautiful game everybody's flying around this the same space you're interacting over this this shared space i absolutely love this game can't wait to get it back on my table the kickstarter right now it's um for the game, a nice wooden insert and shipping, it's about 105 bucks, which I think is fairly reasonable. The components are high quality. I think the art is fantastic. This is a great game. I can't wait to get it back into my collection. That's Soul, Last Days of a Star on Kickstarter now. Uh, I, I'm looking at it right now on the Kickstarter. Adam, is that the same production from the original game or did they do a revised production? I'm almost 100% sure. So like, I don't know, probably like 50% sure that Ryan Spengler said that it was just going to be an exact, uh, almost exact copy of the original production aside from that wooden insert that's available. Yeah, looks pretty uh, spiffy. Adam, I have, this is a, an interesting topic because... Almost a year ago, we had our top five games we can't wait to play list. And one of the games on your list was Organism, which was also designed by the Spangler brothers. You said in another episode, you said that you were hoping to get sold back when they did the Organism uh, Kickstarter, that they would also release this as an add-on to it. Have you heard anything else about Organism? Are they done with that? Are they trying to fund Organism's ongoing production with the new reprint of this? Do you, any any background on that? Last I heard, he was still working on some final kinks of Organism. I know he's done a post about it okay. on Board Game Geek. I haven't looked at it lately. But yeah, that's what I thought that this would be as an add-on to that. But it looks like it's got its own. I think that's why they added that wooden <laughs> insert so that they could legally put it back on Kickstarter. The new addition to it, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, this game is, uh, we played it a couple times uh, before we started the podcast, I think when we were just starting to play on Tabletop Simulator. And Chris, I don't think you got a chance to make it that night, but, but me, me, Adam, and Steve played. Man, I just did not have a fun time with it, but it's such a fascinating, it's a, it's a great production, and it's such a fascinating concept for a game. I'm wondering if I was just in a bad mood that night. It's not a game I want to go back to because I didn't have a fun experience, but I'm wondering if I went back to it, that it might be more enjoyable on an additional play cool production though and uh you know obviously adam loves it it does have a lot of player interaction a lot of unique things going on here i definitely wouldn't recommend anyone from trying it yeah i think on my first play it was a little bit weird to get into it with the kind of the spatial aspect of these little sun divers making these shapes but after going back to it a few times you've got the variability and the cards and the different effects that those bring to the game. It's just neat. A lot of different things going on here that you don't see a lot in board games. All right, right on. Well, I think that'll wrap up tonight's episode. If you would like to follow us, you can find us on Twitter at BG underscore hot takes, or you can find our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash board game hot takes. And that is a mouthful. So just go and search for board game hot takes on Facebook groups and you should find us there. And uh, we're trying to be pretty active there. Uh, Well, I am. Chris and Adam, you guys should join us uh, out there in those Facebook groups. What do you think? Yeah, lots of shaking heads over here. All right. Well, anyway, uh, also, we would love it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We haven't had a review for like a few weeks now, and I'm starting to feel a little bummed out. I feel like maybe we should just give up the show. So if you you like the show, you should probably leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure that we know that you're enjoying the show. Even if it even if it's an average review, let us know how average we are. That feels good too. I know I, I like I think it feels good to have a, a positive review. Average reviews are something, but they're not they don't feel good. But yeah. If we're below average, I don't want to know that though. No. Five star <laughs> five star, maybe a four star is okay as long as you say something nice with the you know sandwiched in between the negative criticism. I think it'd be okay. Be gentle with us. <laughs> All right. Until next week, take care, everyone. Good night, all. Bye-bye.